The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 47 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 44, The Valiant Also Die. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by Vince Coletta, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in September of 1967. Now this is a pretty crazy cover we're starting off with. I love the fact that we get all of the Avengers and that everyone's involved, everyone's taking part, everyone is pretty much of approximately equal size relative to their actual size. Obviously Goliath is a little bit bigger, Wasp is a little bit smaller, but everyone's there, everyone's participating. There's a lot of action. It's a little chaotic, it's a little crazy, but it's fun. And this is a little bit of a crazy chaotic issue so it fits on the upper right portion mostly you'll notice some folks who are in what at first glance looks like a white and purple version of the stereotypical aim beekeeper uniform although it looks that way here on the cover when we get deeper into the issue it'll become pretty clear that there's a little bit of conceptual similarity it's they're very much different costumes from the AIM minions. Now, as you are no doubt aware, we have a new inker on this book by the name of Vince Coletta, and it's very obvious from this first splash page that we have a different inker because he's a little bit more liberal with the inking. It's not a bad thing, but it is a noticeable change, especially when you look at Red Guardian's upper body and you look at Hawkeye's arms. I like it. It helps give him a little bit more definition and it's a little bit more detail-oriented, but it's a little bit different than what we've seen from George Bell on the last few issues. So this issue picks up almost immediately from where we left off last issue with the big reveal that the Red Guardian is in fact Black Widow's husband. Now last issue I didn't get into a biography of the Red Guardian because I thought it would kind of diminish the reveal here at the end of the issue. So let's go ahead and get into that real quick. So the Red Guardian is Alexei Shostakov, who was a very talented, very famous Russian pilot, fought in the Second World War, fought in Korea in what is referred to as MiG Alley, and the Soviets decided to fake his death in order to train him as the Red Guardian. Now it is true, he was, I guess still is, married to Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, and his faked death plays into her story in that that was the driving force for her to join the KGB. Now obviously there's a lot more to her backstory involving the Red Room, but generally speaking that was a turning point in her life. So here at the beginning of this issue, we find Alexei really mocking Hawkeye because of the fact that he came for Natasha and has fallen into this trap and has become a captive because of his feelings for her. And, you know, Hawkeye fires back despite the fact that he's enclosed in the cylinder it certainly doesn't stop hawkeye's mouth which is as we've realized fairly constantly running and he refers to the red guardian as a hotski trotsky which personally i just kind of chuckle at obviously the trotsky is a reference to leon trotsky of the russian revolution and in a post-stalin soviet union being connected to leon trotsky is probably not the best
best bet for your career. But while Hawkeye is exchanging barbs with the Red Guardian, Black Widow realizes that even though she's talking to Hawkeye, he's not acknowledging her. And she connects the dot that this is because of the realization or the, the revelation that Red Guardian is in fact her husband. However, Black Widow's turn of thought gets interrupted because Colonel Ling and General Brushkov return to address the group and they show Widow and Hawkeye an image of Hercules in the Psychotron and initially it looks like he is just fighting thin air because in reality that's what Hercules is doing. If you remember last issue, last time we saw Hercules, he was trapped in the Psychotron by the Red Guardian and he was fighting an image of the many-headed Hydra, only this time he was unable to affect the Hydra in any way, shape, or form. We talked at length about how that would be a form of torture, that he couldn't fight this monster he already knew how to beat, and that as a result he was unable to atone for his sins, as this was one of the Twelve Labors of Hercules. It's worth noting here that Colonel Ling is getting a little bit overconfident, and even says that they have no need of defeating Hercules, that the Psychotron will keep him occupied forever, and so he's not an issue. But the reality is they can't leave him in there indefinitely, and as we'll see later in the issue, as soon as they turn it off, Hercules escapes. Hercules breaks out. So I would very much argue that they do in fact need to defeat Hercules, and that they don't have a particularly good method of doing that. Now that having been said, they can leave Hercules in there for a significant amount of time, formulate a plan, and then remove him from the Psychotron, but at the moment they really don't have anything to work with, this is really just kind of a holding action. During the course of the conversation, Colonel Ling also verifies one of the things that I had supposed about two issues ago, in that the Psychotron is not actually, in its current incarnation, a functional mass weapon, if you will. It's not quite a weapon of mass destruction, but it's not able to affect people outside of the, the small room that it's currently contained in. The Colonel straight up says, Right now, the powers of the Psychotron are limited to a single chamber, but soon, very soon, we shall be able to project images of whatever we desire into the very heartland of the enemy. So, as far as weapons go, this thing isn't even particularly effective at the moment. Like I said, it can affect a single individual, but nothing more. Now, what Colonel Ling has in mind is really fairly spectacular, especially to start. We get a great panel of a tidal wave smashing through middle America, hundreds of miles away from the ocean, and terrified Americans running from this wave in utter panic and confusion. Then it's followed up by what looks like an alien attack, and then finally, the highly trained communist troops roll in to take over the American heartland. And as Colonel Ling puts it, the entire world shall be ours without the incalculable hazards of nuclear war. To me, that is extremely interesting. It's a point worth dwelling on for a moment here, that even the villains in this story are wary of nuclear war. Now, the idea is played off in the guise that the enemy is trying to protect the valuable resources in America that they would then gain access to. But, you know, the 1960s, again, were not that far removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. The idea of nuclear war is still a very clear and present danger. And I think it's very telling of the people who are writing this story that they make even their villains concerned about the idea of nuclear war. That not only will it affect us, but it'll affect them. That nobody wins in that situation. It is very emblematic of the time and culture the story was written in. That not only was nuclear 
nuclear war and ever-present threat, but the acknowledgement, even by the villains of this comic story, that nuclear war would be a detrimental occurrence to the entirety of humanity, no matter what their political ideology. It's also fascinating that the general here starts to kind of call out Colonel Ling a little bit, and he senses that the colonel's motivations may not be exactly as they seem. And the general mentions, you know, only using this on their enemies. And the colonel kind of brushes the idea off of, oh, yeah, absolutely, only on our enemies. So you can see, even amongst the united front of the communists, if you will, there is still dissension amongst the ranks. And I was kind of thinking that, again, this is kind of emblematic of a lot of comic books where the heroes tend to more or less be on the same page. Right, they fight as a team, they fight together, whereas villains, be they supervillains or just regular communist officers here, they're on the same team, but they're really not. Circumstances have brought them together, but beyond that, there really is very little actually holding the organization together. And that's a fairly common theme throughout all of superhero comics. There are, in fact, a handful of fairly well-known comic book story arcs that revolve around the idea of what would happen if all of the supervillains actually got their acts together and worked together. And typically it's pretty disastrous results for the heroes. Now, in addition to questioning Ling's motives, the general also pushes on Ling to figure out why Black Widow was able to resist the Psychotron. Because in theory, nobody should be able to resist the Psychotron. It should be almost crippling in its effect. Remember, a second trip into the Psychotron should kill you. So why was Black Widow able to attempt to escape after her ordeal? While Ling kind of tries to push past this, Brushkov doesn't really let him, and when Black Widow declares that she's not a traitor, Brushkov decides to try and prove it by use of a highly advanced lie detector device, which it's a little over the top, I'm not gonna lie. It is one hell of a lie detector. It's got a whole helmet and a separate console, and it, it's quite the device, but it proves that Black Widow is in fact not a traitor to the communists, and so as a result, they release her and allow her to join their team. For lack of a better term, it's not really a team. It's Red Guardian, Black Widow, and these, these two officers who don't actually really do much of anything. Now, of course, this is yet another gut punch to Hawkeye. But even with this, he really fights to believe that this is all part of Black Widow's plan. That she, in fact, has betrayed her former country, and that she has joined the American side, and that she really is the woman he thinks she is, and, and the woman he loves. And I really, I like that out of Hawkeye. There is a loyal streak in him that just does not want to give up. Some of that, I think, is youthful optimism. Again, Hawkeye is fairly young, but at the same time, I think it also has to do with the fact that Hawkeye himself was a villain at one point and that he has reformed and that he feels that other people are capable of reform as well. Again, that is very much a recurring theme throughout the Avengers. And speaking of several re reformed villains, the rest of the Avengers arrive at the secret base that Hawkeye and Hercules urge them not to come to, but of course the Avengers can't leave a teammate in the lurch, 
So they make their way to this secret base only to walk themselves into a trap. Now, in this case, they're pretty certain they're walking into a trap, so they're fairly well prepared for it. As they make their way through the base, a laser cannon of some kind uh, rises up from the ground. Captain America shouts the longest warning ever. He would never have time to get, get it all out. But needless to say, the Avengers are able to get out of the way and avoid the falling debris that would have crushed them otherwise. And Scarlet Witch uses her hex powers to turn the tables on the men manning this cannon and crush them beneath other rubble. And in this particular instance, she is particularly dangerous, destructive, and moderately murderous. I mean, she crushes these guys beneath a fairly sizable chunk of rubble. I think they're pretty much dead. It's 1960s superhero comics, so nobody really dies. And that's aside from the general superhero trope of nobody dies. You know, the heroes don't kill people. This is in the 80s, the 90s, when Punisher shows up. But yeah, I'm still pretty sure that Scarlet Witch just up and killed like two, three minions. I can't quite tell, but there's at least to there. However, they are at a secret communist military base, so there is effectively an endless stream of soldiers who are going to face off against the Avengers, kind of like horde mode in a lot of first-person shooter games. The, the one that comes to mind is Halo to me, especially I think it's the end of ODST. I think it's the end of ODST, where you end up fighting just wave after wave after wave of, of enemy soldiers of varying skill level. And of course, you know, as you progress, the soldiers get more and more capable which is exactly what we see here. We start with the basic soldiers in their khaki uniforms, and then we get a giant parasonic thermo ray, which they could have just said really big flamethrower, and I would have been cool with that. And then we move on to guys with jetpacks and stun guns. We keep upping the ante here. Now, I really enjoy these couple pages here as the Avengers fight their way through all these troops. The art here is really quite good. I love the action. There's a page in here that made me really laugh in that at one point I didn't realize Quicksilver was in the panel. Um, I thought it was a bush because there is just a green blur in the background and I didn't realize it until about two panels later when they mentioned Pietro's warning and I looked back and was like, oh, that's a speech bubble coming from that green blur and that's definitely not a bush. I'm hesitant to call that a problem with the art and more of a problem with my attention span. We also get to see Quicksilver playing a little bit more of an active role in the fight. So to start, he gives the rest of the team a warning. He operates as a moving target, pulling away several stun blasts from Goliath. And then in a little while, we'll actually see him use his speed in a new way, and I don't mean his little flying thing, but in a more realistic new manner that I really like. And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment here. But while this fight is going on, Captain America inadvertently falls into a trap door and finds himself in one of the glass cylinders similar to what we saw Hawkeye and Black Widow in earlier and there he is facing off against the Red Guardian or he finds himself face to face with the Red Guardian and as the communists debate whether or not to let Red Guardian fight against Captain America whether it's too much of a risk or not Captain America doesn't really give them any say so he just smashes through the cylinder not standing around and just gets right down to fighting Red Guardian Guardian. And it's a pretty great fight, though it's obvious from the beginning that Captain America is really the better fighter here. What else is interesting here is that Red Guardian talks about being trained to be the counterpart of Captain America, basically being his equal and opposite, if you will. So I see one of two options here. One is that Red Guardian is just based on Captain America's model, based on his idea. So he's been training for however long in secret, 
but that the Soviets really had no concept that Captain America was coming back. Or, conversely, he's only been training for the two years or so that Captain America has been back. Remember, Captain America was frozen in ice since the late days of World War II, so almost 20 years. Now, if that's the case, it would certainly explain why Captain America gets the better of Red Guardian. It's just Captain America's better trained. Two years is certainly a lot of time to train, but it's also not equal to the amount of training that Captain America has. It does, however, throw a little bit of a wrench in his connection to Black Widow. If he's only been training for two years, that means he faked his death probably sometime in the two years ago time frame, which means Black Widow's only been working for the KGB for two years. It's just a very short timeline. So I think it's the first idea that the Red Guardian has been training in a Captain America like model, but that he was never specifically designed to go head to head with Captain America, at least until Cap returned, and then obviously things changed. Now, about halfway through this fight, Red Guardian attempts to use his belt buckle, and Cap just smashes it with his shield, and I'm really quite pleased with that because, you know, that was a really dumb gimmick. Cap's shield kind of works. I mean, it certainly is a gimmick, and it's certainly a little goofy on face value, but they've been able to make it work. The belt buckle is taking that gimmick and just making it a little bit too goofy, a little bit too unbelievable. And so it doesn't work very well, so I'm, I'm glad to see it go. Also, it serves to momentarily remove Cap's shield so that it really becomes just a fist fight between Red Guardian and Captain America, kind of like in the beginning of Winter Soldier when Cap is fighting Batrock and he puts his shield away. Same concept, except in this case, the shield's just kind of removed by a plot device. So while Cap is facing off against the Red Guardian, Hawkeye manages to get free, though he doesn't actually know how. He assumes, probably correctly, that Black Widow has messed with the controls to his cylinder so that shortly after they left, the controls exploded and allowed Hawkeye to free himself. Now, Hawkeye's not going to wait around. He's going to go ahead and join the fight here. And I love it because now all of the Avengers are engaged in the fight in some way, shape, or form. Even though they're not fighting all together all at the same time. You know, I've talked about how much I really like the Avengers fighting together. I read a team book because I want to see a team fight. Well, here I finally get to see the team fight. And it's been a while since we've gotten a solid entire Avengers team fight. We got a little bit of it at the end of issue number 42. But not really. I mean, Captain America just kind of showed up at the end, fought for about a page, and that was about it. This is really the Avengers doing what a team is here to do. They're taking on the, the fights that no individual could have taken on, and I love it. Now, back on the surface, again, I mentioned the jetpack-powered guys with stun guns. They are going to town on Goliath, and what I appreciate most about these couple of panels is that Goliath has taken several stun blasts, and he's still going. I've always thought, up until now, Goliath tended to get knocked out or stunned far too easily. You know, he's supposed to be obviously bigger than everyone else, but stronger and with more endurance proportionate to his size. So he should be able to take more punches and more stun blasts and things like that before they have a similar effect on a regular sized hero who might only take one or two. Now, of course, given the number he's taken, and it, it's probably in the five or six range at this point, there were a few earlier on in the issue, and then he takes a good solid two when we return to the surface. So he's feeling kind of out of it, and right as he's trying to clear his head and regain focus, this giant robotic tank of some kind comes flying in 
almost out of nowhere coming after the Avengers. And this is where I mentioned earlier that Quicksilver is going to become more useful. And he runs around this device so fast that the air forces around him. He basically makes a tornado of types. The air forces are enough to rip this armed literally armed tank into pieces. And I like that because as I've mentioned before, up until now, Quicksilver really is the person who runs out in the beginning of the fight, gets punched really hard or stunned or something, forces Scarlet Witch into action, and then everybody else joins the fight. And that's kind of been the pattern that we've seen for a while. And I like the fact that we're breaking the pattern and that Quicksilver has more to offer the rest of the team. So while the rest of the Avengers are dealing with things above ground, Captain America is making pretty solid progress against the Red Guardian. Enough to the point where Colonel Ling feels he needs to step in, and so he stuns Captain America as Cap is going to go pick up his shield, and this angers Red Guardian. And it's kind of an interesting mix of emotions here. On one hand, Red Guardian is upset because the way Captain America was taken out is unfair and lacking in honor, really. Red Guardian wants to be able to say he beat Captain America fair and square, and this is obviously obviously not fair and square, but the actual way he reacts is fairly petulant and childlike to me. He yells at Ling, no, you cannot defeat him so unfairly. And in general, the way he responds is a little bit like a kid throwing a tantrum because he doesn't get his way. He doesn't get to defeat Captain America the way he wants to defeat Captain America. And he wants to finish him off in a fair fight. He demands that they revive him so that he can continue the fight when he was very obviously losing the fight. Now, of course, Colonel Ling wants nothing to do with this, and as the two of them argue, Black Widow, who very conveniently still has all the equipment she needs, sneaks off and disables the computer that powers the Psychotron. Now, just as she does so, Colonel Ling goes to shoot Black Widow in the back, only for Red Guardian to step in front of the bullet. Now, at this point in the issue, things start to happen kind of fast. So as Red Guardian steps in front of the bullet, General Bushkoff and Colonel Ling are both hit by an arrow from Hawkeye. Hawkeye swings in and catches Black Widow as she falls. With the Psychotron disabled, Hercules smashes his way through. And in this whole process, a fairly massive fire is started in this subterranean area of the base. So Hercules, once again, making doors where he damn well pleases, throws a giant piece of machinery through the ceiling. The rest of the event see this hole, lower a line down to their teammates, and just as Hercules and Captain America are getting pulled up, Colonel Ling decides to try and take one last pop shot to try and kill Captain America. This time he's got a laser gun, and just as he is firing the laser gun, Red Guardian hits the laser gun, knocking its aim off, and in the process hits a number of gas pipes, causing an absolutely massive explosion which consumes most of the base and actually causing lava to come up from the ground. There's a great moment here where as all of the average soldiers are running away, one of them just yells, but where did the lava come from? And that right there is an excellent question. It is an utterly terrifying one, but it is an extremely apropos question because 
so far in this episode, we've seen no lava. So where did it come from? Now, the theory postulated by the Avengers is that this base is built on a long dormant volcano and that the massive explosion seems to have made it non-dormant. But I, I really feel for this, this soldier who up until today has just kind of been hanging out doing his thing. And suddenly today, out of nowhere, there's lava. So to me, where did the lava come from really is a thoroughly appropriate question for the situation. Now, as the Avengers make their way home, we realize that Black Widow did in fact catch part of the bullet that Colonel Ling intended for her, and so the Avengers rush her back to the hospital in a scene that is very reminiscent of when Wasp was injured way back in Avengers number 14. The difference I see here is really in the attitudes of Hawkeye and Goliath. Before Wasp was injured, Goliath was not overly attentive to Wasp, and in fact often fairly disrespectfully dismissive of her. In this case, Hawkeye comes into the situation with far warmer feelings for Black Widow, and those feelings remain pretty constant throughout the issue. So, after it's clear that Black Widow will survive, and a few days have passed, the Avengers come to visit her, and Black Widow takes the opportunity to explain her connection with the Red Guardian, and the fact that he was in fact her husband, and the fact that he was a test pilot, and that when he died, as we discussed earlier, that's one of the things that drove Black Widow into working for the KGB. They also explain, because otherwise this part wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, that the reason Black Widow was able to pass the lie detector was because she had a post-hypnotic suggestion to make her honestly believe that she wasn't a traitor if she was questioned. So everything gets fairly neatly wrapped up at the end of this issue here. Now, for the most part, this is actually the last we will see of the Red Guardian as Alexei Shostakov. Now, at some point in the future, we will see a life model decoy that is based on Alexei. However, it's not the real man. We won't actually see him appear as a living character until Daredevil number 64 in Daredevil volume 2, which doesn't come out till 2004. So for all intents and purposes, this version of the Red Guardian is dead, though there will be several other versions of the Red Guardian who will appear throughout the years, and they'll be different characters. So before we close this issue, I did want to take a few moments and talk about probably the biggest Avengers news in the last certainly couple of weeks, probably a couple of months, and that is the release of the Avengers Infinity War trailer. I'm not going to go into an entire play-by-play -play of the trailer, just a, a couple of thoughts on it really. One is that, quite honestly, I am super, 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 super stoked for this movie. All that trailer did is just psych me up even more. It's pretty obvious, given the fact that there's going to be two films, that this one is not going to end very well for the Avengers, and I'm kind of excited to see that and see exactly how these characters deal with defeat. I mean, Thanos is just so, so menacing. It is so brilliant. The narration he has over the entire trailer is pretty spectacular. Watching him take some of the gems by force is really impressive. And it especially fits with his previous statement of, I'll do it myself, where he really is there forcing his will on the galaxy as a whole. Honestly, one of my favorite parts of the trailer is is the somewhat mournful version of the Avengers 
title. You know, it's it's normally a very triumphant, heroic score, and in this case, it's the same theme, but it it lacks that heroic nature, and it is far more of a almost a funerary procession. It's not quite a funeral dirge, I would say, but I I do think mournful really is the best way to describe it. So, not that I wasn't excited before, but I am now even more excited about Avengers Infinity War. Can't wait for it. Now, for those of you who follow us on the Facebook page, you also saw that I posted something about watching one Avengers movie a week starting in January, and then that will have it so you watch all the films just before Infinity War comes out. And I haven't quite decided yet what I want to do with it. I do definitely want to do that. I want to do something for the page with that, so I'm still debating exactly how I want to address that, but if anyone has any suggestions or requests regarding that, I am certainly open. You can send them to andrew at avengersassembly.com. Remember, you can find us at avengersassembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to andrew at avengersassembly.com. Next week, we're going to be diving into Avengers Annual Number 1, The Monstrous Master Plan of the Mandarin. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.